0: Before I begin today, I'd like to give a quick plug to my podcast Patreon page. A huge thanks to those who already signed up. For a monthly subscription of just $3 a month, you too can gain access to bonus material, such as extra episodes, and now a guidebook I've put together on the Northern Crusades. The set of episodes beginning today builds on previous episodes, available on Patreon, which cover the Northern or Baltic Crusades, up to the Battle of Lake Papers, or Battle on the Ice, of 12.42 between Teutonic Knights and the Russians, led by Alexander Nevsky. If interested, please visit patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, or follow a link on my Facebook page or blog www.historyeurope.net. This is, however, in no ways required for today's episodes. So without further ado, the next four episodes will cover... The Baltics, Poland and Teutonic Knights up to the Battle of Grunwald or Tannenberg, 1410. The History of Europe, Key Battles podcast, has always sought to present the various conflicts which have afflicted the continent of Europe from the perspective of all sides. In so doing, I seek to provide an alternative to the national narratives which have traditionally dominated. The chroniclers who wrote the primary sources on which historians depend are virtually all biased in favour of their own side to a greater or lesser extent. In the age of Romanticism and growing nationalism in the 19th century, the same biases often prevailed. Likewise, still in the periods of the First and Second World Wars, all of which led to a deep gulf between how different nations came to view the same historical events. There is no better example than the Battle of Grunwald, 1410, also known as the Battle of Tannenberg. One of the largest battles in medieval Europe, it is often used as a source of national pride by the peoples of Poland and Lithuania, and has become a larger symbol of the struggle against foreign invaders. During the 20th century, the battle was used in Nazi and Soviet propaganda campaigns. For example, when in the First World War, the Germans defeated a Soviet army in August 1914, near the site of the ancient Battle of Grunwald. They called their victory the Battle of Tannenberg to try and avenge the defeat of the Teutonic Knights more than five hundred years before. As in other historical conflicts around Europe, only recently have historians moved towards a more dispassionate, scholarly assessment of the battle, and so help reconcile the previous narratives. Welcome to a history of Europe: Key Battles, the Battle of Grunwald or Tannenberg, Part One of four. The Battle of Grunwald of 1410 was fought between the Teutonic Knights, a religious military order whose members were mostly German but not entirely, and an alliance between the Kingdom of Poland and the Duchy of Lithuania. Since these medieval powers are not familiar to most in the 21st century, I will describe the background to each before going into the narrative of the battle. In brief, the Knights, whose full title was The Order of Brothers of the German House of St Mary in Jerusalem, had their origins in the Siege of Acre in 1190 during the Third Crusade. German merchants from Bremen and Lübeck established a makeshift field hospital to attend the numerous sick and injured crusaders. They operated in much the same manner as the already well-established orders of the Knights Templar and Hospitallers, but focused more on the crusaders of German origin. All three orders committed themselves to caring for the sick and assisting in the defence or recovery of the holy places. In appearance, the Teutonic Knights were distinguished from their sister orders by wearing a black cross upon a white robe and mantle. They received active support from the German Emperor, Frederick II, Hohenstaufen, and from the Papacy. In the face of a Muslim resurgence, the fortunes of the Teutonic Knights in the Holy Land declined like that of the Crusader States in general. This and their distinct national identity led to it developing a particular connection with Germany, even more so when their attention shifted to Central and Eastern Europe. They first answered a request for help in 1221 from King Andrew of Hungary, whose Transylvanian provinces were being attacked by the Cumans, a steppe tribe north of the Black Sea. The knights were highly successful in this task, but when King Andrew came to suspect that the Order were trying to take advantage and carve out a new state for themselves on his borderlands, he was angered and sent an army to remove them. As the Transylvanian adventure was collapsing, however, the knights received another request for military and religious assistance from a Polish nobleman by the name of Duke Conrad of Mazovia. Duke Conrad had himself been unable to successfully conquer or convert the pagan Prussians on his northern borders. The Teutonic Order therefore entered Poland for the first time in 1222 at the express wish of a prominent Polish noble. In return for their services, it was agreed that they would be granted ownership of the territories of Kolm along the river Vistula, and any further territories they conquered in the course of the operation. Within a few years, the territory of Calm was conquered and its inhabitants converted to Christianity. In the 1230s, the Order's first castles began to appear. Thorn in 1231, Marienwerder in 1233 and Elbing in 1237, which secured the River Vistula. Also in 1237, the Teutonic Knights were joined by a rival military order, the Sword Brothers, with the patronage of the Bishop of Riga. Their territory in Livonia on the southeastern shores of the Baltic Sea became an autonomous province of the Teutonic Order. The combined lands, now under the order, comprised almost 100 miles of the Baltic coast in addition to the considerable area of the interior. Unlike in the Middle East, the participants of the so-called Northern Crusades were able to hold on to their conquered lands and become the new local ruling elite and so their crusade changed from an exercise in converting pagans to one of colonisation. The pagan princes of Prussia were gradually stripped of their lands and influence, and in place of their wooden fortresses, a new network of castles was built to protect the German settlers, firstly made of wood, but then later the formidable brick structures that survive still today. In the early 13th century, the southern Baltic littoral was frequently referred to as Mariana, or the Land of Mary. But in the course of time, Livonia came to be used by all. In theory, Livonia was united under one archbishop and the Teutonic Knights, who both shared the Pope in Rome as their external sovereign. In practice, though, it became a confederation of powers. The Teutonic Knights, based in Prussia, the semi-independent Livonian order in the northeast, and the city of Riga, with its own independent-minded bishop. The different parties cooperated against external threats, but vied with each other for territorial control, often violently. The city of Riga, with a population of perhaps 10,000 in the late 13th century, was the largest urban centre in the region, and came to enjoy considerable influence and wealth as a hub for trade in the region, especially along the river Dalgava, also called the Western Dvina. The conversion of the native Prussians, Bolts and Slavs was at first quite superficial, at least outside the newly established towns. The Church simply lacked the funds to maintain clergy in the countryside and was unable to prevent the priests they recruited in Germany from drifting back to the cities. When people did accept Christianity, they often adapted local myths and traditions despite the best efforts of the Church to discourage this. The immigration of large numbers of German and Polish peasants helped speed up the process of assimilation, but the sincerity of the conversion of the natives was often dubious. In the more remote areas it would take centuries for Christianity to fully replace the old beliefs. The conquest of the pagans of the southeast Baltic coastline was reasonably rapid, but the territories further inland proved more challenging. The Orthodox Princes of Russia were also keen to expand their influence westward and competed with the Latin Christians, especially in the regions of the far eastern Baltic, where today are located the nations of Finland and Estonia. The border between the Teutonic Knights and the Princes of Russian Novgorod was determined by a number of skirmishes and battles in the mid-1200s, most notably the Battle of Lake Papus, also known as the Battle on the Ice, Of 1242. At this time, it looked for certain as if the last remaining pagan lands would be overcome from either one of these strands of Christianity. In the end, however, one group of pagans, the Lithuanians, would not only go on to hold out and survive, but to create a powerful state that would become one of the largest of late medieval Europe. In 1200, the Lithuanians' way of life and political importance was about the same as that of their neighbours. They were members of the same language group as Prussians and Letts, and like them, consisted of a peasantry living under the rule of a mounted warrior class in the densely forested basins of the river Neman, Neres and Vilja. It is an interesting question why the Lithuanians were so successful politically, while all their fellow pagan neighbours to the north and west were subjugated quite quickly by outside powers. Andres Plakans in his book, A Concise History of the Baltic States, suggests some possible explanations. In part, he writes, it was the matter of timing. The strategy of the Crusading Orders was first to subjugate the north before moving to the south, which gave the Lithuanians 20 or 30 years to organise resistance. In addition, the deeply forested and swampy Lithuanian territories were not as accessible as were the lands to the north. Both the terrain and climate made any sustained military campaigning very difficult. Also important was the emergence of a remarkable dynasty of Lithuanian leaders, especially its founding member, Mindaugas, who lived from around 1203 to 1263, and who is credited with unifying the tribes of Lithuania. Little is known of the origins of Mindaugas, his early life, or his rise to power. His first appearance in any documents is in a 1219 treaty with the neighbouring Russian province of Galicia, Volinia. The Lithuanians did not produce any surviving records themselves except for a series of acts granting lands to the Livonian order, and even these documents are disputed. So most of what is known about the reign of Mindaugas is obtained from Western chroniclers. Eric Christiansen, in his book, The Northern Crusades, describes Mindaugas's success as follows, quote, In 1219 he was one of about twenty Lithuanian princes, by the end of his life he had mobilised the whole free population to fight for him or his sons, either as cavalry or as infantry. His horsemen copied the tactics of the Mongols but used short-throwing spears and swords instead of bows and protected themselves with mail. His infantry carried spears and axes and his let or auxiliaries made use of the crossbows they had got from the Teutonic knights. End quote. Mindaugas faced a series of conflicts from many sides against his own relatives for control of Lithuania and against the pagan population of the region of Sembegitia to his west, as well as the Teutonic Knights to his north, the Mongols in the southeast and the Poles in the southwest. In 1252, Mindaugas was persuaded by Pope Innocent IV to be baptised in exchange for being crowned King of Lithuania. The Church was given permission to send missionaries to preach the Gospel, Throughout his lands, and turned a blind eye to the fact that Mindaugas continued some pagan practices. But the Lithuanians and Samogitians strongly resisted Christianity, and Mindaugas was compelled in 1261 to break peace with the Crusaders and revert to paganism. His change of heart showed up his support locally for a time, but two years later, in 1263, he was assassinated by a nephew. His rejection of Rome and the fierce resistance to Christianity within his dynasty altered the seemingly predetermined history of the Baltic region, for his successors were to remain pagan for more than a century afterwards. The subsequent rulers of Lithuania always had to be extremely careful about their religious policy, situated as they were on the fault line between Latin and Orthodox Christianity and ruling over a population with deeply ingrained pagan beliefs. In fact they played the religion card exceptionally skillfully in their diplomacy. In their negotiations with the Latin church they repeatedly used the possibility of conversion as a bargaining tool, often cynically. To the local Lithuanian population, they appealed to their pride in maintaining their native culture and belief systems. And as the dukes of Lithuania expanded their influence into Russian land to the southeast, they were careful not to antagonize their new subjects by attempting to challenge their orthodox beliefs. Lithuania was able to expand south eastwards and become a major European power because its rulers skillfully exploited the opportunity presented by a power vacuum created in Eastern Europe by the decline of Mongol power. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. In the 1230s, the Mongol armies of Genghis Khan and his successors swept across Eastern Europe and took control of the cities of Kiev and Rus'. Within a couple of generations, however, the great Mongol Empire started to break up into several khanates. One such khanate was the Golden Horde, which formed in 1259 and extended from the steppes of southern Russia into Central Asia. Its rulers, the Tatar Khans, completely subjugated the southern and eastern regions of Kievan Rus'. The more remote Russian rulers in the far northwest around Novgorod were allowed only a very limited level of independence, as were those of the far west in the region of Galicia Volinia. Situated in an area around the modern nation of Belarus, plus parts of eastern Poland and western Ukraine, Galicia Volinia became a wealthy and important regional power during the reign of Danilo Romanovich, who lived from 1201 to 1264. Historians often consider this principality as the last independent state in the Ukrainian lands until the rise of the Cossacks in the 17th century. But writes Serhii Plaki in his book The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, their level of independence was somewhat limited. Quote, while often in disagreement and occasionally at war with the Khans of the Golden Horde, galicia Volinia remained a tribute-paying vessel until the end of its existence in the 1340s. In exchange for tribute, The Khans allowed the Galician Varinian rulers complete independence in their internal affairs. In the international arena, Galicia Varinia benefited from Pax Mongolica to the end. The weakening and eventual breakdown of that international order in Eastern Europe facilitated the forward of Galicia Varinia as a unified state. The Lithuanians were not the only ones who sought to benefit from the weakening of Galicia Varinia they had to compete with Hungary and Poland for the attempted carving up of western Russian lands. In 1340, King Casimir III of Poland attacked the Galician capital of Lviv. At first, the local elite resisted, with some help from the Mongols, but in 1349, the Poles conquered the whole principality. The next year, an alliance of Lithuanian and local troops, expelled the Poles from Volhynia, the northern half of the principality, but Casimir was able to hold on to the southern half, Galicia. The integration of Galicia into the Kingdom of Poland opened the region to Western influences such as the Polish model of noble democracy and German model of urban self-rule and the benefits of Italian Renaissance education. But it came at a price that some Ukrainian historians consider too high. Galicia lost its semi-independent status and some aspects of its cultural identity, namely ruled by a boyar aristocracy, traditional Rus' artisanship Perhaps most importantly, the Eastern Orthodox Church faced powerful competition from the Western Church in Rome. The Lithuanians, in contrast to the Poles, adopted a policy of looser control over the Ukrainian territories which they conquered. Their leader during their greatest period of expansion was Prince Gidiminas, who reigned from 1316 to 1341. Egyriminas allowed the Orthodox population of Vilnius to freely worship their faith and often allowed the ruling elite to retain their offices as long as they recognised Lithuanian overlordship. This policy of toleration helped persuade his subjects to stay loyal to him and the boyars to sometimes join in his military campaign against his enemies, principally the Teutonic Knights. The sources during the times of the Lithuanian conquest of Kievan Rus were unfortunately scarce and contradictory, and so the dates and details are not known for sure. Probably sometime in the 1320s, a Lithuanian army under Gediminas defeated the Prince of Kiev and was able to take control of the ancient capital of Kievan Rus'. In 1339, or thereabouts, a son and successor of Gidiminas, named Algirdas, defeated the forces of the Nogai Tatars, the leading tribe of the Golden Horde, in the Pontic Steppes, in a great battle known as the Battle of the Blue Waters. As a result, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, as it was now called, expanded southwards all the way to the Dnistra Estuary on the Black Sea coast. Lithuania became not only the successor to Kirin Rus, but also the holder of most of the lands that today comprise the nation of Ukraine. The Lithuanian rulers exploited the wealth of the conquered regions, particularly its silver, wax and furs, to support a growing military establishment. The Grand Prince, his sons and vassal princes with their forts and retinues but they also quickly adopted the ways of their new subjects who became the majority within the expanded state. The successors of Gidiminas married into local Rus' families and soon accepted the Orthodox faith, traditional Slavic Christian names and a version of the Kievan law codes. In addition, Church Slavonic, the traditional language of Kiev, served as the language of administration throughout the Grand Duchy. The Lithuanians were in fact welcomed by most of the Rus princes who were content to live in what was effectively a Lithuanian Rus state, the official name of which was the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, Rus and Samogitia. To the east the Grand Princes of Moscow were steadily accumulating territory and power but at this point were not yet strong enough to throw off the yoke of the Mongols nor challenge Lithuania for control of the western Russian lands and so it was the Poles and Lithuanians whose conquests together led to the eventual extinguishing of Kievan Rus, bringing to an end an era that had begun back in the 10th century under the Varangians and Vladimir the Great. If you'd like to know a bit more about the background of the Baltic Crusades, I have a couple of recommendations for you today. Firstly, the History of the Crusades podcast is just beginning a new series on that very topic. Having covered the Crusades in the Middle East and the Albertansian Crusade in France, his host, Sharon Easter, is going into more detail than I will have time for in my podcast. I highly recommend her podcast. Secondly, if you fancy a bit of fiction, there is an interesting series of detective books, based in 15th-century Tallinn, written by an Estonian author, Indrek Haggadah. The main character is the town's apothecary, named Melchia, who is charged with discovering the truth about some murders committed in the town. To do so, he must rise above competing interests of merchants, guilds, religious orders and Teutonic knights. Again, I would recommend this, to know a bit more about the background to the region and the times. Thanks for the feedback you've given me so far. It's been really useful. Uh, remember, you can get in contact with me on the Facebook page for the History of Europe Key Battles podcast on the blog, www.historyeurope.net. Uh, you can contact me on Twitter at historyeuropekb, KB for Key Battles, or you can write my email directly, carl at historyeurope.net. Thank you very much for listening to a History of Europe Gibbattles podcast and I hope you can join me again next week for the second part of the Battle of Grunewald.